in 2002, just after I graduated from college, I moved with a couple friends to Austin, Texas. Most of my time in Austin was dedicated to playing music, but I also held a series of odd jobs. I worked at Texas Monthly Magazine, I was an outdoor guide, I taught guitar to kids. But one of my first jobs was as a short order cook <laughs> at a bar called the Posse East, <laughs> which is adjacent to the UT campus where Nathan and Leslie uh, got their undergrad education. Anyone that knows me knows that I have no business working in a kitchen. <laughs> I'm a pretty solid dishwasher, um, but when it comes to culinary arts, I am, uh, I'm not well equipped. But the cooking skills required at the Posse East uh, were minimal. One of our most popular dishes was called Frito Pie. Um, a dish whose preparation entailed opening a bag of Fritos, pouring it into one of those little paper fry containers, and scooping chili on top of it. Not exactly Heine Garden, but it got the job done. Um, the kitchen where we operated there was tiny. It was just extraordinarily small. If I stretch out my elbows from my, my waist, I would touch both food prep counters that were in the center of this room. At the end of the passageway, there was a door where the orders came in, and at the opposite side, there was a large grill. Within that tiny space, four or five of us would cram in for a couple hours, to all the, the most uh, intense hours of the day, you know, lunch rush, or if there was a game at the, at the stadium there when it was just extraordinarily packed, and we'd be in there all day, five or six of us just crammed in there. And often I was positioned at the grill, flipping dozens of burgers at a time, or cooking chorizo, or doing fajita fillings. It was really hot by this grill. And the space was so tight that I would like bump into people behind me in even the most basic movements. I was basically trapped back there. <laughs> now, this was the dawn of the cell phone age. And culture had yet to develop the courtesies that are now common, like turning off your cell phone when you're in a public place. The technology, technology had evolved just enough to allow for like personalized ringtones. Um, and one of my coworkers, one of the five people I'd be stuck in this tiny room with, took advantage of this burgeoning science and selected what is still listed as one of the worst ringtones of all time. Let me just give you a little taste <laughs> of, of this nugget. Yeah. In case you missed it the first time. Yeah. Trapped by a grill with that. This was not just an option for the cell phone. My coworker somehow uh, configured it so that that would be the default setting. Uh, any new contact, any change she made, any call, anything that happened with that phone, we got that. <laughs> default settings. We all have them. 
Some of these settings are deeply integrated into our very bodies. They're not optional. For instance, the fight or flight instinct. If a tiger were to jump out of this piano right now, our survival instinct would kick in, and most of us would either run away or prepare for attack. I hope you chose the former. This kind of reaction is just very deep-seated. Evolutionary biologists tell us that it is among the earliest developments in our brains. Many refer to it as the reptilian brain. While that reptilian brain is helpful for bear attacks and track meets, it is less helpful for standardized tests, DMV appointments, and a good deal of daily life. There are many spiritual practices that are dedicated to developing habits that prevent the overstimulus of that fight-or-flight response. We can form habits by doing things like Zen sitting, contemplative prayer, playing music, or other things that we do here at St. Mike's all the time. We can do those things that change how we respond, but it will always be part of us, this reptilian brain, like the default settings on a phone. In most cases, these default settings are neither good nor bad. They're part of who we are. Part of how we experience the world. Some of us are naturally more outgoing, some prefer solitude, some are more auditory, some more visual, others inherently tactile. Some are scientific. I'm thinking of Norm, as he is off at the March for Science in DC. Go Norm. Hope you had a great time out there. Um, excited for, for that. But the scientific approach, this, look, this seeking of evidence that supports an idea before we believe it. This is how Thomas reacts to the news of Jesus' resurrection. This is Thomas's default setting. Thomas, tough deal. Historically, the, the church labels this poor guy Doubting Thomas. Man, definitely not a celebrative role. Thomas is shamed because he did not accept the testimony of his friends. He did not simply believe. It's really too bad. Because what Thomas does is actually a great thing. Far from being a faithless disbeliever, Thomas instead asks the kind of questions that demands the kinds of answers that lead to greater understanding. Most importantly, Thomas opens the door to deeper relationship. Thomas, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his closest friends, someone who ate and slept and traveled and breathe with Jesus day in and day out for years. He says, no. I don't want to just take your word for it. I have an intimate relationship with this man. I want to see him with my own two eyes. Thomas longs for intimacy. Thomas gets exactly that. How incredible is this moment? 
Jesus, who has been beaten and killed by capital punishment, I can't help thinking of the executions in Arkansas this week. Jesus died and then was resurrected. Now, many depictions of the risen Christ look like Barry Gibbs in white robes with an airbrush body. <laughs> that Jesus doesn't even have pores, much less wounds. But in John, not only does Jesus have wounds, he invites Thomas to touch them. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. This takes immense vulnerability, intense intimacy. In her book, The Power of Vulnerability, social scientist and author Brene Brown writes, In our culture, we associate vulnerability with emotions we want to avoid, such as fear, shame, and uncertainty. Yet we too often lose sight of the fact that vulnerability is also the birthplace of joy, belonging, creativity, authenticity, and love. Vulnerability as the birthplace of joy, belonging, creativity, authenticity, and love. Oh, I love that. She says vulnerability starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Here is Jesus going past locked doors, appearing to a group of people who are scared for their lives, and letting himself be seen. Touched to share breath. These are the same men who scattered when Jesus was being killed, and here Jesus is welcoming them back into the fullness of their relationship, telling them, showing them that they are loved. They are loved not because they are perfect, but as an essential and unchangeable aspect of their being. Brene, Brene Brown connects this to our reptilian brain. She says, we are all wired for struggle. She says, you are imperfect. You are wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. Worthy of love and belonging. Echoes the voice of God at Jesus' baptism. This is my son. This is my child whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Worthy of love and belonging. In a few minutes, we'll baptize little Smith Sigler back there. It's easy to look at this little guy and say, you are worthy of love and belonging. This is one of the most smiley babies I've ever seen. <laughs> Talk about default settings. Smith's default setting is smile. <laughs> I've seen him in the hospital when he was born. I've been with him in big crowds, with family alone. I've been seeing him sick and tired and hungry. But always, always, his face lights up and he gives me a smile. Until I pour water over his head in a couple minutes. <laughs> I should note that the poor guy is also teething right now. He's got, I think, his two front ones coming in. Yeah. 
So we'll, it's all right if you don't smile. Smile, it doesn't have to be every moment. When we stand together around the font and say these ancient words, these words that echo God's voice at Jesus' baptism, we are inviting Smith into a different way of being, a new way of being wired, a new setting. We are preparing Smith to receive God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that reveals the mystery of Christ among us, the Spirit that forgives, the Spirit that looks out into the world and sees what others would miss. God's kingdom, the resurrected Christ, the justice and peace that comes through intimate relationship. Where we see locked doors, the Spirit sees opportunity. Where we see embarrassing wounds, Christ sees deepened relationship. Where we look for death, God is showing us new life. It's not all rainbows and butterflies and smiles. The Holy Spirit also trains our hearts to hear the cries of the oppressed, to see the suffering of our sisters and brothers, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We are witnesses, martyrs, the Greek word for witness. Witnesses like bystanders at the scene of a crime, people whose testimony can shape justice. With the fear of war and violence on the geopolitical front, with concern for immigrants and the reality of religious persecution at home, with tragedies in Syria and Egypt and so many other places, it can be hard to see the kingdom of God. But when we come together, when we remember the love that overcame death, when we turn to the new life in our midst, we get a glimpse of the eternal love that made us unfolding here among us. We stand with Thomas and Jesus and Peter and Smith and Nathan and Leslie and Summer and Ben and Amy and Emmy and Sally and Tony and Sarah and Fede. <laughs> MLK, St. Francis, Mother Teresa, we stand with all of eternity as witnesses to the love that surround us always and everywhere, and we dedicate ourselves to growing that love in our midst. You can call that baptism. You can call it church. You can call it witness. But that is where we stand today, together, intimately, touching that eternal, boundless love. Amen.